Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. I just felt the heaviness of the Lord and just feel like the Lord is always in attention to our need. And I just am so thankful that we serve a God who cares. We serve a God who is with us. He weeps with those who weep. He rejoices with those who rejoice. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. I love that because... Some of us have been abandoned, and we know what it is to be left. But he also says, I will never forsake you, which means I'll never think badly of you. And some of us wear a coat of condemnation every day over things that have been done or things that have happened to us. And I just just speak that over you. The God who gave his all to have a relationship with you, he does not condemn you. He does not speak ill of you. He is proud of you. He rejoices over you. And beloved, he delights in you. He delights in you. Amen. We're going to continue in our study in Revelation. We are in week four. We finished up Revelation chapter one this past week. I did the math with my son uh, on the way in the car this morning. Uh, I said it took us four weeks to get through chapter one. There's 20 some chapters. That means we're going to be in here for about 80 weeks. And we're going to pluck out everything we can. It'd be awesome. No, we're, we'll take some breaks here and there. But I just think it's important that we don't skip around and skip over, that we just dig in and see what God has for us. Because there's a message, there's a word that he has, or else he wouldn't have left this for us to read and to study. And there's a blessing attached to that. So I, I'm in for blessing. I could use all the blessing that, that I can get. So we're, we're going to do this. On the screen, there'll be a map for you. Um, this, what we're getting ready to read is Genesis or Revelation chapter 2, and it begins the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. There are seven churches that Jesus is getting ready to address through the Apostle John, and they occur in Turkey, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, in the bottom left-hand corner, that little the place where the line starts, that's the island of Patmos. That's the place where John has been exiled for preaching the gospel. So um, historians say, and the legend has it, that John was not only arrested for preaching the gospel, but they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, and he survived. And so they're like, well, if we can't kill him, we're just going to get rid of him. So they put him on this island that was like a penal colony. It It was a place for political prisoners. So John's on this island. He's in exile, and he has this vision from God. And we saw the last few weeks how he was unpacking this vision of Jesus coming to him in great glory. And now Jesus is getting ready to address seven literal churches that existed in Turkey at the time, beginning with the church of Ephesus. And as we'll see, it'll go up this trade route and all the way down, ending in Laodicea. And so we'll see this over the next few weeks, these messages that Jesus has for the church. Now, key to the opening passages here in these letters is that in every letter to the churches, Jesus introduces himself as if we didn't know who he was. 
All right, this message is from Jesus. Who's that again? Like, you know, I mean, the churches know who Jesus is, right? But he introduces himself in a unique way. And what he does is he recapitulates the things that John describes when he sees Jesus in the vision in chapter 1. So he'll peel a line out of that description and use it as the heading or the introduction to this letter as a way to signify something he's trying to get across to the church he's getting ready to address. So it's important we don't just like skip over these things because we miss out on what the Lord is trying to say. And right here, as, as we see um, Jesus at the beginning of Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's what he writes. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we just, we praise your name for what you've already begun in our gathering this morning. God, we thank you that we know we're two or more gathered in your name. You're right there. We thank you that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in the life of faith. That right now, at this very moment, the veil between heaven and earth has thinned. And we are in the presence of Almighty God on the throne. Jesus at his right hand, the Spirit of God, the angels of glory, and every saint that has gone on before us that is worshiping and praising your name. And God, we just celebrate that we get to praise you with all of our brothers and sisters for all time in this moment. God, we ask you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see a mind that understands and a heart ready to believe all that you've set up for us, God, that we wouldn't miss the message that you've written to the church of Ephesus. And we know, God, you sent this to that church in that time, but it wasn't just for them, it's for us today. So God, speak to us. Help us lean in. And I pray, God, that at the end of our time today, we'd be different than the way we walked in. That our hearts would be hotter and burning brighter. That the Spirit would fill us. We'd be re-energized, filled with hope, and God, that we would be closer to you because we know in your presence there is life, there is joy, there is peace, there is goodness, there is love, there is everything that we hope and desire in this life is found in your presence. So help us lean in today, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm so excited for this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. So he introduces himself as the one who walks among the seven stars or has the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this should sound familiar because we just talked about this a couple weeks ago. That Jesus reveals that the seven stars represent the angels that are in charge of, or they were called the eyes of the Lord. They're the ones who watch over or in charge of the seven churches who the lampstands represent. So the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks represent these seven churches. And the seven stars represent the angels of the churches in whom Jesus begins the letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So everyone is included in this letter. It's not just the church, but it's also the angel over the church. It's like a message being geared to the whole group. We also saw that these letters were symbolic for the entire church. So as we begin to look at what he says to this church we can pull out a message that applies to us today. So what's different here, though, than what is recorded in Revelation chapter 1, is in Revelation chapter 1, if you go back and look, John says, when he sees the vision of Christ, he says, behold the one who is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
But here in the opening of Revelation chapter 2, he says it a little differently. He changes the description, and he writes that Jesus walks among the seven golden candlesticks. Now, again, just skimming through and listening to your Bible app, you, you might miss that, but the nuance is important because they, they refer us back into the Old Testament, back into what God is trying to communicate to us. And, and when you hear that phrase, walks among the seven golden candlesticks, it makes me think of or, or hearkens me back to Genesis chapter 3, just after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, and they realize what they've done in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 3, verse 8, it gives a description in, the, in this moment, and it says, and they heard, that's Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord, what? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from what? The presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here we have the presence of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which we know is Jesus himself. And what's he doing? He's walking among the trees of the garden. He's walking through the garden. He's in the midst of the garden, walking among the trees in the cool of the day. In the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, it's the same word here in Genesis for walking as John uses in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, as walking amongst the candlesticks. There's a, a linguistic connection. And this word walking means to tread all around or to walk at large. So the presence of the Lord is being depicted in Genesis 3 as moving amongst the garden, moving amongst the trees, just as John is describing the presence of the Lord, Jesus himself, moving among the churches or the candlesticks. What's also interesting symbolism here in Genesis 3 is that we have the sound of the Lord walking. If you look back 3 verse 8, it says they heard the sound. Somebody say the sound. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. This word sound means to rejoice. It can be translated as voice, but it means in singing, shouting, rejoicing, praising, or calling out. So it's not just the sound of footsteps. That's how I would read it. If I would think of like the sound of the Lord walking, I'd think, burp, 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 you know, here, here God's footsteps. Oh, those are deep steps. Yeah, it's probably God, right? That's what I would think, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying he's rejoicing. He's singing. He's calling out. Do you, can you imagine, like, what does Jesus sing when he sings? Like, is he singing worship songs? Like, like, like what's he singing? Like, I am the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my dad, that is who we are, you know? Or, or what about Jira, I am enough, you know? Or he might go old school. I am so good. I am so good. I am so good, so good to y'all. You know, what does he sing, right? But like, I just, you, you got to think about these things. But how awesome is it that even Jesus sings? Even before he came in the flesh, God was singing over his creation. It's such an amazing thing. And here he's calling out. And who's he calling out for? He's calling out for his kids, Adam and Eve. Because you know he knows something happened. 
You know he knows something's a little different. And so he's walking in the garden, singing and rejoicing, calling out to his beloved children. And what are they doing? They're hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord. They're trying to hide themselves. Now, what's interesting also is that they were hiding amongst the trees of the garden. It wouldn't surprise us to find trees in a garden, right? Like when you think of a garden, you think there's, there's probably some flowers over there. There's, you know, some other weird plants we don't know but look cool. And probably a couple ornamental trees here and there. You know, we've got, you know, we like to plant ornamental trees in our, in our gardens. We got one little tree in our garden at home. And, and it's, so you wouldn't be surprised to hear, see trees in the garden. But now scholars understand that Genesis is actually written in a poetic fashion. So it's not, a, it's not written like a historical record. It's written more like a prof, uh, poetic story. And so the trees of the garden also have metaphoric uh, implications or, or definitions. In Ezekiel chapter 31, we're not going to turn there. You can read that at another time. But the prophet Ezekiel is leveraging a judgment against Egypt for being proud and arrogant. And he uses this same phrase, the trees of Eden, as a metaphor for the nations that God is about to judge. That there is, there is a correlation between the trees of Eden, the trees in the garden of God, and the nations of, of the world, the nations of mankind. And so the, the Garden of Eden is more than just a garden. Matter of fact, in ancient times, the uh, ancients believed that gardens were the sanctuary of the gods. So when you see the Garden of Eden, the word Eden means pleasure. The Garden of Pleasure is the sanctuary of of God, and in it has these trees that all could also be signifying uh, regions of authority. And we know from Scripture that God assigns angels to be lords over or rulers over territories or regions of authority. We saw this uh, last week when we read in Daniel chapter 10 that God assigned principalities over, over regions. We saw about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece were spiritual powers over these nations. Michael is the spirit prince over Israel. He's the watcher and protector over Israel. And so we have this understanding that there are principalities and powers in place over regions of authority. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus indicates that children, might be all people, but at least children have angelic guardians. That even there are angels assigned to watch over individual people, or at least children. So what we could be seeing here in Genesis 3, in the dwelling place of God, that it might not just be this beautiful garden that God planted, it really might be the dwelling place or the abode of God on earth. Where heaven and earth intersects, the first earthly temple or tabernacle of God, and that the trees of Eden aren't really trees like what we would see outdoors, but what they are are the principalities and rulers over the regions God has set up in the garden, in the earth, for them to uh, watch over and tend to. And now Adam and Eve, they've sinned, and what do they do? They go hide among the trees. They go to hide 
amongst the other beings in the garden, amongst those angelic regions or places of authority, to hide from the presence of the Lord. What are they doing? They're seeking protection from the angelic powers because they're afraid of what God might do. And God's walking among the trees, his angel, his presence is walking among the trees, and he's calling out to this first couple, Adam and Eve, and what's he doing? He calls them to give an account of what they've done. And we know that they sinned against the Lord. We know that, that they, they deserve death, but he gives them mercy. He kills an animal. He covers their shame and their nakedness. Just like Jesus, the good shepherd, who leaves the 99 to find the one, he goes looking for his lost sheep, and he calls out to them, and he gives them mercy. And so death passes over them for a time. It would revisit them again later in their lives. But something does happen to them in this moment. They are kicked out of the garden. They're removed from the presence of the Lord because what they were doing wasn't honoring God. And not only were they removed from the presence of the Lord, but there was a tree in the garden that was unique. It was the tree of life. And they were kicked out of the garden because God said if they were to eat from that tree that they'd be sustained forever, that this would be an eternal existence. They would never die. They would be damned eternally. So he kicks them out of the garden to keep them from enduring that harsh judgment. In the lampstand before the throne of God, in Zechariah chapter 4, the menorah is symbolic, the ancients believed, for the tree of life. That the reason why it's in the tabernacle and it's shaped the way it is, it's to represent the tree of life that's before the throne of God. And so what's interesting here is you have God beginning this letter to the Ephesians. He's saying, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, who walks among the candlesticks. And now he's calling out to the Ephesian church, much like he called out to Adam and Eve. And he's calling out to the angel who's in charge of watching over this group of people, because he's the one with the stars in his hand. And he begins this letter after this introduction, so you know who you're talking about. Your mind is thinking about the frame of mind that Jesus is approaching this letter. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, here's what Jesus says. Remember, this is directly from Jesus through John to the church. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Just looking at this commendation from the Lord, this is something I would want Jesus to say about me. Don't you agree? Like with all the chaos in your life, all the chaos in the world, everything like going on, I would love for Christ to say, Joey, let me tell you about you for a minute. 
you are knocking it out of the park. You're just, you are faithful. You're strong. Even the, the suffering you're doing, you're not giving up. You're, you're doing what's right. You're standing against what's wrong, what's evil. You're exposing all these false teachers, these people who are proclaiming to be, be in a biblical authority and a spiritual authority, and you're standing for truth and righteousness, and you're not giving up. You're enduring it patiently, and you're doing it for my name's sake. You're, you're so loyal, you're so faithful, and you've not grown weary. You're, you're not like those believers who just, when they, when they get tired, they quit, and you don't see them for another 18 months. You're, you're there every week. You're there all the time. You're always on your knees praying. You're always reading your Bible. You're always doing these things. I would love for Jesus to say that about me. And I know you would too. And I think there are some in here that actually fit that description. You're tireless, you're faithful, you're enduring. These are all awesome and important things that we should be doing. It should be the fruit produced in our lives. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He switches gears and he brings about a harsh rebuke for these people. In Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 4, Jesus says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And we kind of touched on this a few weeks ago, discussing the lampstand imagery, but it bears repeating because I think this is a message we all need to keep in mind. Jesus describes his church as a church running on all cylinders, knocking out of the park, holding fast to their faith, loyal to the cause of Christ. But here he says they abandoned the love they had at first. Now I think at first glance I would think, man, how could those two things be simultaneously true? I hearken back to or think back to the words of Christ. What did he say? He says, you'll know that the world will know you're my disciples by the what? By the love you have for one another. He says the two greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus over and over again in the scripture as he's debating the Pharisees and the religious rulers, he says, listen and think on this scripture. The Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. There's the heart of God and God wants his people to display his heart when they gather, as they live. But as we think about the first description of this church and we think about this rebuke, it's kind of contradictory. How could a church, being holding, holding fast to true doctrine, standing against the evils of the culture, standing against false teachers, even enduring criticism and persecution from the culture because of their stance for Christ, how could this, be, this church be accused of losing their love? I think there are really two ways that we can understand this. The first way is that they lost their affection for Christ. They lost their affection for Christ. And it's expressed well by theologian John Wolverd in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on the book of Revelation. Here's what Wolverd writes. He says, the order of the words in the Greek is emphatic. The clause could be translated, your first love you have left. 
Christ uses the word agapen, speaking of the deep kind of love that God has for his people. This rebuke contrasts with what Paul wrote in Ephesians 35 years earlier. He never stopped giving thanks for them because of their faith in Christ and their love, their agapen for the saints in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 and 16. Most of the Ephesian Christians were now second generation believers, and though they had retained purity of doctrine or beliefs and purity of life and maintained a high level of service, they were lacking in deep devotion to Christ. Author Michael Heiser, I think, rightly points out that they didn't lack in faith in Christ because they were doing all of this for his name's sake. But they are obviously loyal to the gospel and the truth. But even so, what John is writing here in the descriptions elsewhere we see in Scripture, it would appear that among all their works, everything they're doing, all their religious duties and inactivity, they allowed their hearts to grow cold. Michael Heiser, in the, his book, The Old Testament and the Book of Revelation, he alludes to this lacking their first love by pointing to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. The prophet Jeremiah, in writing to the, the nation of Israel, he says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. If you think about Israel after they came out of the Red Sea, did they get to go right into the promised land? No. They rebelled against the Lord, and they ended up having to wander the desert for 40 years. And God made them do that until every rebellious Israelite died in the wilderness. So finally, 40 years has come. Joshua is finally leading a band of Israelites that are eagerly hungry to serve God, to fight his battles, to be in the promised land, to dwell with their Lord and Savior for all eternity. They go and they conquer the promised land. They set up a shop. And it wasn't long after Joshua dies that they defect and turn to false idols. And the angel of the Lord, he says, I'm not going to strive with you anymore. I'm not going to fight your battles for you anymore. And the angel of the Lord leaves. Later in Ezekiel, we see that God is once again, hundreds of years later, upset with the nation of Israel after everything they've done, after all the ways he's blessed them. He's upset with them again because of their idolatry, their wickedness, their rebellion against God. And it says the glory of the Lord departed the temple. The presence of God left the temple. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah describes Israel when he was prophesying as a group of people devoted to religious duty, yet God wasn't accepting anything they were doing for the Lord because in 29.13 it says, These people say they're mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So you have the people of God delivered from Egypt, miracle after miracle, amazing experience, amazing prophet after amazing prophet. Their hearts drift, and though they're still doing the same religious works and routine week after week, day after day, they're doing it without their heart attached to it. The Ephesians weren't falling into idolatry yet, but like the ancient Jews, they had gotten lost in the religious machine. So what began as a passion for Jesus Christ 
that moment you, you realize, oh, man, he died for me. He did all that for me. He loves me that much, and he wants a relationship with me. And you come to Christ, and you have this experience, and you're on fire, and you're just going after it. What turned from, began as a passionate expression of love for God, soon began to dim. And they had the what of their faith, but they lost the why of their faith. They knew what they were doing, but they didn't know why they were doing it anymore. Wolverd continues in his commentary. He says, the Ephesians were first reminded to remember the height from which you've fallen. They were told to repent and turn to the love they had left. Similar exhortations concerning a need for deep love for God are frequently found in the New Testament. Christ stated that one's love for God should be greater than his love for his closest relatives, including his father, his mother, his son, and his daughter in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Paul also added that love for God should be even above one's love for his or her mate in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. In calling the Ephesian believers to repentance, Christ was asking them to change their attitude as well as their affections. To change their attitude as well as their affections. They were to continue their service not simply because it was right, but because they loved Christ. And I think that's an important point for all of us. That they were doing what they were doing because it was right, not because they loved Christ. And I think what's important for us to, to think through and understand that there will be times in our Christian life, in our, in our day-to-day walk with the Lord, our times in service in the, in the kingdom of God and service in the church, that we're not going to feel it like we do other times. There are going to be times where it'll be everything you do just to stay faithful in doing what is right. That's a normal experience. Life happens, things happen, and, and it tugs on you, and you just get tired and you get weary. But at the end of the day, you still love the Lord, which is why you stay faithful. This wasn't a difficult season issue with the church of Ephesus. It wasn't just a hard season that they had to get through. This was now their culture and their community. That it was all about the religious participation and what we stand for publicly, but underneath it, there was no love for Jesus Christ. Their entire community was centered on the law of Christ, not the love of Christ. They were focused on outward expectations without heart affection. They forgot that it's perfect love that casts out all fear. That love covers a multitude of sins. That Jesus time and time again, again, said he desires mercy, not sacrifice. But yet they were caught in the religious machine. They had a country club mentality. And they became all about their outward sacrifices but forgot mercy. Or if they didn't forget about it, they forsook it. And I think many of us struggle with mercy, with really walking out love. Why? Because mercy is messy. Mercy is messy. Loving people is messy. It's easy to preach the truth. It's easy to point fingers at other people. It's hard to preach the truth in love. Recognizing that it starts with you. Giving mercy, extending love. But the Ephesian believers, they became truth tellers. 
For beloved, the church is supposed to preach the truth in love, bearing with one another, helping each other in our weaknesses, to share the weight of each other's burdens. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. And what's sad is that Paul writes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, in and around AD 60. Scholars believe that the book of Ephesians was written around 60 AD. In 60 AD, here's what Paul writes to Ephesus. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are what? Are faithful in Christ Jesus. In 60 AD, he writes, man, you guys are faithful. You're, you're knocking it out of the park. God, you're loving each other. You're walking in the spirit. You're doing all these amazing things. And you can read all the rich doctrine and stuff that Paul writes in the book of Ephesus it's, or Ephesians. It's awesome and it's amazing. They were faithful and trustworthy, but the book of Revelation, they believe, is written around 90 A.D. Not 30 years later, Jesus is writing this letter to the church of Ephesus. Just a few decades from when they began, when they were planted by the apostle Paul, they had already been spent, burnt out, and were operating in religious routine. If you think about it practically, our church has been around for eight years. That means we're almost one-third to that point. That's not very long. That's not very long. They had become known for what they were against more than what they were for. They were against the culture, and they weren't really for one another. And I think this is what prompted the Lord to give them this warning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The word fallen means to fall out of. To fall out of. Somebody say fall out of. As if they were in love, and now they have fallen out of love. It's like a married couple. That honeymoon happens, and man, they're in love. We got the butterflies. And it's like, this is awesome. We're never going to have a problem. We're never going to fight. We're, we're just like, everyone should just watch us. We should write a book. This is this so easy. So easy. After two years, it ain't so easy. They were in love. But now 30 years later, they were out of love. Do you remember what you did when you were first in love with your spouse or Maybe you're dating someone now, and maybe you've been dating for a while. Do you remember all the cards you used to write, or now it's text messages? Now you have to try to translate emojis. All the late-night phone calls, the giddiness you felt whenever you, you thought you were going to get to hang out with them again and spend time with them, and all the ways you go above and beyond to show your affection, like all the super romantic things you would, you would do, and you would... You do just to kind of ensure that they really did like you and that they would stick around, you know, all these different things. In like fashion, there are things we do when we first are born again, when we first come to Christ. When you become a new believer, it's like all you can think about is Jesus. All you can think about is the next worship song you can jam to and and praying the next time you can get into the church doors and be with those people that you fell in love with that you just met for the first time and you you want to serve in every ministry because for some reason you just you can't stay away 
and you're just there day and night. Every day the doors are open. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You just want to be a part because when you're together with the body of Christ, it's not like being anywhere else. And you love it and you crave it. But over time, that can begin to wane. Why do we get excited at the beginning? It's because we want everyone to experience what we experience. We tell everybody about Jesus. There's this guy that comes to the gym. I've known him now for a little bit now, but he is recently a believer. And the dude, like, he's got headphones in, and he's singing at the top of his lungs in the gym while he's on the machines, like worship songs. It would be awesome if he could sing on key. He doesn't sing on key. It's really hard to get a good rep in when he's starting to crack up laughing, you know. But it's awesome, and he's always smiling. He's always like, man, God is so good. Man, God's done. Why? Because he was a heroin addict that's been freed and delivered. And his life's been transformed. Is he perfect? No, but he's just overwhelmed with what God's done in his life. So he wants to tell everybody about him. He's like recruiting people to, their, to the church he goes to, left and right. Why? Because he wants everyone to experience what he's had. And this is what the church of Ephesus was like when they began. They were knocking it out of the park, but within 30 years, they were lost in tradition, burnout, and cold to the Spirit of God in the heart of the Father. That's so tragic. They were meeting together, but their focus wasn't on the one who walks among the candlesticks. Their focus was on the culture and what the culture was doing wrong. They opposed the culture, condemned the culture. They became self-righteous, looking down their nose at everything going on in the world, rather than trying to win the culture for Christ. And the threat to them was that they were going to lose their lampstand. And this has implications for us today as the body of Christ. Again, the menorah, it was a solid piece of gold. It was made out of one solid piece of gold. And so it was a, it was a candle abra with six lampstands on it, all connected to the singular base. And at the top of the menorah, if you can picture a menorah, the top was a bowl as where they kept the oil, which was the fuel for the light. And then there'd be a wick for the flame. To remove the lampstand is to remove the ability for that stick to hold oil. And oil all throughout the scripture represents the anointing presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the fuel that makes light possible. It's the oil on the stand that makes light possible. Without the presence of the Spirit of God, there is no presence of the Lord. So to remove the lampstand or the candlestick would be to remove them from the presence of the Lord and the anointing power that goes along with it. And just as oil represents the Holy Spirit, the fire represents the power. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, what? Comes upon you. So to remove the candlestick from the lamp removes their ability to have oil, which also removes the power of the people to God to be the very thing they were meant to be. And what's that? Witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this and we look at how historically... There have been times in Israel's past that God has, his presence has left the people. And we look at how Jesus is giving a similar message to the church. We have to ask the question, why would he communicate this to the church? 
Why would he allude to this moment in Genesis 3 as he walks amongst the trees, similar to him walking amongst the churches? I believe it's because the Lord is trying to tell them he's not building a kingdom of hate. He's building a kingdom on love. You're called into the world not to be a part of the world, but also not to hate the world. You're right to hate evil, not to hate people. You can hate evil. That's the fear of the Lord. But you're not to hate people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the unseen world. You don't hate people. You bless those that persecute you. You pray for those who despitefully use you. The kingdom of God is built on the love of God. And if you're not with that program, you don't need to be part of the kingdom. And so what happens to a church who once had the spirit, the presence of the Lord, and they lose the spirit. They enter into decline. They lose traction. Ministries fall apart. People leave. Leaders fall. They enter, in, enter into survival mode, that it's everything they can do to keep the doors open. They begin going through the motions because they can't do anything differently because they're so focused on everything going wrong. They get weary and tired. They stop believing God for big things. They stop walking in faith, stop being faithful to what God's called them to do. And slowly over time, the people age, nobody new comes in, and eventually the door closes. Have you ever attended a church and you just walked in the room and it felt dead? You just walk in and it's like, I don't know what it is, but something ain't right. You could go there, they could have all the bells and whistles. They could have all the latest lights. They could have the best band. Their kids' ministry could have a water slide in it. Like, they could have all this stuff, but it just doesn't feel right. And then you could go into a small church that doesn't really have anything. It looks like they're barely hanging on, and it's filled with life and love and joy and God's moving. What's the difference? The difference is the presence of the Lord. See, one is trying to manufacture it, but the, only, the other one has it. And only one is going to shine. Because it takes the presence of the Lord to shine. The one who's connected to the lampstand. Now, every church can go through a hard season. We've been through hard seasons. We're on the outside. It looked like that maybe that uh, something was wrong within where it seems like God is far away. But again, those seasons change. So the call to the, effect, the church of Ephesus is not for those of you that, that care about feeling distance from God. The call to the church of Ephesus of those that know that are distant and don't care. Because there's a warning for those who are distant from God. You know your heart is far from God, but you really don't care. At least not enough to make any changes. You're rooted in your routine, and that's just fine and dandy. For you. The call to you that Jesus is making to you is to repent. Now, repent, that word repent seems to feel like a dirty word in our day and age. But all that means is change direction. That's all repentance means is you are heading this way, but you're making a decision to now go this way. That's called repentance. It's change direction. And the Lord is saying you're heading this way. You need to stop, turn around, and go the other way. Go back to what you were doing at first. 
This warning needs to affect your heart because that's what's the focus of this message. There is a danger for you in being numb. Just like in the parable Jesus gives of the talents. He gives different servants talents. Five, he gives five talents to one, three to another, one to another. And they all invest except the one that gets one. He buries his in the sand. And when the master comes to reap his reward, everyone's able to give him a bonus except for the one that buried his talent. And so what's he do? He takes the talent he gave to the one, gives it to the five, and he rebukes and casts the other one away. And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, don't waste what I've given you. Don't waste this opportunity to what I've given you. Inaction puts you in danger of missing out on the blessing of one who walks with the Lord. A spirit-filled life that enables you to live a life that pleases the Lord releases the power of Christ in your life. The power of Christ that enables you to have a transformed life and transform the lives of other people. And this will not just impact you, but it will impact the larger church. Michael Heiser points out in his book, he says, Since the lampstand and the star angel are inextricably linked due to the imagery in chapter 1, applying to the collective churches, removing the lampstand would be to remove the church's witness. The lampstand church will cease to play the role of being a kingdom priest or maintain a priestly witness in the end time church. What is the role of a witness? It's to testify about what you've seen and heard. They lost their first love. They grew cold. Therefore, they are about to lose the anointing and power that God has poured out on them and all the effectiveness they could have to shine for the Lord. The first application is they lost their affection for Christ. The second application for losing your first love refers to what Jesus said to do after repentance. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works. The works you did at first. Author Gary Beale writes this. He says, This explains the loss of love as unfaithfulness to the covenantal task of enduring and preaching and the gospel for a witness. What did they do when they lost their love? They didn't just lose their affection. They also lost their witness. They lost their ability to represent Christ. So it's not just losing a love connection to God or a love connection to one another and becoming a religious church built on works and religious expectations devoid of the power of God. They may have opposed evil. They have might be failing uh, they might be resisting false teachers and false prophets. They might be the one on YouTube and on the Internet trying to correct everybody's doctrine and try to keep the church pure. But the one thing they were failing in is their ability to make disciples. They couldn't preach the gospel and advance the kingdom because they weren't going to have the power to do it. The crux of the Great Commission, Jesus gave his church before he ascended into heaven. The reason why he's given us the gifts of the Spirit, the power of God in our lives, was to enable us to be witnesses for Christ and make disciples of every nation. And they were failing in their mission to make disciples. They were angry at the culture, but they weren't winning the culture. The Ephesians are aching to people today who love to complain about the world complain about politics, 
gripe about everything going wrong with culture, fuss about all the drama with people and in the religious scene, and yet they fail to even share Jesus with anyone else. They snub their nose at evil, but fail to share the only thing that can actually make a difference in the culture. I believe the gospel today in many ways has become the silent antidote kept secret from a dying world. We'll invite people to church, but we won't tell them about Jesus. And the gospel is kept secret because the love of God's people for their Savior, for what he's done, and love for this lost world that we were meant to infect and change with the gospel, it's grown cold, and it's grown cold because we, by and large, have failed to fan the flame of passion and love in our hearts and our churches. We've grown into making a load of excuses as why we can't participate or this is too much or, you know, that city walk thing. Oh, no, Scott's talking about city walk again. They're going to go in the community and they're going to pray for people and hopefully tell them about Jesus and see someone get saved or, or healed, but I can't do that. Well, what do you have to do that? I don't know. I, they, got their, they got TV on. Oh. So your show matters more than their soul. Your show matters more than your Savior. We make decisions like this every day. We let life get in the way of calling us. And we get caught in a religious machine. It's because ultimately it's what we feel like we have to do, not understanding that this is really a matter of identity. It's a matter of who we are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God, sharing Jesus with the world is not an option. It's not for the people that are better at it. It's for everyone. Praying for people, laying hands on the sick, being a witness for Christ, that's not for other people. It's for you, and it's for me. It's for all of us. The symptoms that we experience in the church today just reveal that many people are just more about their own comfort and feelings than the cause of Christ. And this is really boils down to a love issue. And believe me, I wrestle with it too. There are times where I just want to put my headphones in and ignore the world. Like, God, I don't want to people today. I'm really not into peopling today. You know what I mean? You feel me? Sometimes you just don't want to people people. But God died for people. And people are dying. And there's only a matter of time. And the symptoms we experience in the church today just reveal that really our lives are centered around ourselves, and it's a love issue. We've fallen out of love with Jesus, and it shows in how we don't really spend time with him, and we don't really desire to join him in what he's doing. Jesus promised one thing would enable us to be his witnesses. That's the endowment of power from the Holy Spirit. Removing the anointing presence of the Spirit removes our ability to be what Jesus has called us to be. And if that wasn't enough, there's another implication about removing the lampstand. Dr. Heiser points out that it revolves around the angelic hosts assigned to the churches. 
By removing their place among the churches, it also implies removal of the angelic guardian, the angelic power assigned to the church. The stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. There could be an angel for every church or an angel in every city where the church exists. But either way, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul, as he's prophesying on the last day, uh, about the end of days, he's saying there is a spirit at work in the world. It's the spirit of lawlessness. It's the spirit that wants to transform the world from being what God designed, from being what the enemy desires. And I think if we would be honest with ourselves, we would see, we could see the spirit of lawlessness at work in our world today. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, this is what Paul says. He says this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Even back in Paul's day, he could see lawlessness at work in the world. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So there's a spirit of lawlessness that's trying to encroach on the world, and there's a spiritual force restraining this lawlessness from coming in full force. And many claim this to be the Holy Spirit, and I don't, I don't necessarily hold to that because I think there are other, there's other precedent in the Bible that refers to something else other than the Spirit of God. But um, you know, it very well could be or could be interlinked with what we see here in Revelation chapter 2. But the context of Revelation 2, I think, makes this more sense that it is the angelic host that God has set up to watch over the people of God, that God has set up to uh, rule over nations that are in alignment with his will, that it's these principalities that are resisting the spirit of lawlessness. Michael, who's the prince or archangel assigned to the nation of Israel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is prophesied in the last day to stand against the spirit of the Antichrist to hold him back so the nation of Israel can be uh, saved. In Daniel 12, 1, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who's in charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there's never been since a nation was until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Can someone say amen? The time Michael arises... There'll be a time on earth unlike there's ever been in all of history. It's going to get terrible. It's going to get bad. But at that time, when Michael arises, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. There's some hope. The term arise means to make a stand or hold one's ground. So there is a force that is restraining the spirit of lawlessness. When the Antichrist makes his move, Michael is going to hold his ground, restraining him from destroying the people of God, and Israel is going to be delivered. God uses the angelic host as guardians to aid in the deliverance of God's people, restraining the wicked and helping the righteous. When the lampstand or candlestick is removed from its place among the churches, not only is it a loss of accessing the presence of the Lord, but it also is a removal from all the benefits of the presence of the Lord. The anointing of the Spirit, the ability to be a witness, and also the loss of the church's supernatural protection. Opening it up to persecution, greater tribulation, struggle, and even extinction. Roughly 172 years after the book of Revelation was written, in the year 262 A.D., the Goths destroyed Ephesus. And it had a period of resurgence over time, but according to an article on history.com, the Ottoman Empire took final control of Ephesus in the 15th century 
However, the city was in dire straits, its harbor practically useless. By the end of that century, Ephesus was abandoned, its legacy left to archaeologists, historians, and the thousands of visitors to flock to the region each year to see the ancient ruins. So even though Ephesus had a resurgence, the Catholic Church took over and there were churches being built, the faithful church never entered into repentance. And now today, Ephesus no longer stands as a vibrant city, but is now heaped in ruins. The implication for this specific church doesn't just apply to the big C church, the church all around the world in general, but it also implies the impact on the surrounding community that the church exists in. God's blessing and favor on Vertical Life Church is not just for Vertical Life Church. It's for Vienna Township and Clio. The presence of God and his people have an impact in an area when they are filled with and walking in the spirit, or should be. When Israel was going into Babylon in exile, the prophet Jeremiah writes this for the Lord in Jeremiah 29, 7. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How well your city does will determine how well you're going to do. God did not move you here. He did not bring you to life here. He did not plant you here to watch the city be destroyed. He brought you here. He saved your soul. He anointed you with the Spirit. He called you to bring a blessing onto the city that comes with the presence of the Lord. We think of the Jews going into Babylon as a spiritually dark place. He tells them to set up camp, build a life, but don't forget to work for the city's welfare. Pray for your community. That's why we have prayer night every Sunday night. We're not just praying for our own personal needs. We pray for our city. We pray for our nation. We pray for God's blessing to be on his people and to be on the place that we live. Because I believe God's intention is to use his people to bring light into the darkness, to be a burning candlestick in a dark place. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had people in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was dark. And God sent angels there to pull the people out because he was going to bring destruction on the city. And Abraham begins to barter with God. He tries to make a deal. And he says, if there's 50 righteous people, will you save the city? And God's like, yeah, I'll be merciful. If there's 50 righteous, I'll save the city. And they have this back and forth. And finally he gets to 10. He's like, okay, one more time, one more time. If there's 10 righteous people, will you save the city? And Jesus, the Lord, says, yeah, if there's 10 righteous people, I'll save the city. But you know what? They couldn't find ten righteous. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were the only ones to escape, and even his wife didn't make it. Imagine if there were 50 righteous. Look at America today. We're becoming more and more secular, more and more liberal, more and more corrupt, more and more immoral, calling evil good and good evil. We have left far past common sense in the realm of gender issues and equality. We're on the crazy spectrum when it comes to the basic logic of understanding gender and the issues of how we're just born naturally male and female. We're not even on the train. Think of communities 
in our culture where they had churches that were the center of society. Now they're marked as historical landmarks with a secular society built all around them. We're losing the conversion war. You want to know why children are such a hot topic in the nation today? It's because the Lord said, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's older, he will not depart from it. Children are such a target because the enemy knows if I can get them when they're young, I'll have them when they're older. In our families, in our churches, are failing to disciple the younger generations so when they get up to their high school level, they leave and they don't turn back. They get lost in the swamp of public university. They defect from their faith and they join in with what the enemy is wanting to promote. All the while the church is angry about abortion, angry about gay marriage, angry about all these things we stand up against, all the things we post online about, but we're not winning people to Christ. Why aren't we winning people to Christ? Is that they just don't want to hear it? No. We're not winning them because we're not telling them. We're not walking in the power of God to demonstrate the love and heart of God. We're not walking in the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to lead us, to empower us, to minister to people. And we're not doing it. Why? Because we're losing our love. We're comfortable. We're tired. We've done that. We've participated in that. That's not for me. That's for someone else. I can't work that into my schedule, even though I'm not really doing anything. I forgot to plan it. I forgot to be involved in it. Don't ask me to do that. That's too much. All the while, the world is going to hell around us. And if we don't change, if we don't repent and capture the vision of what the church is supposed to be, the church is supposed to be built on Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against it. We're supposed to be built on Christ. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, walking in love, proclaiming the gospel to every nation, making disciples of every nation so that the world around us can dwell in the blessing of the presence of God. But we see the exact opposite in this world. Why? Because we're failing in our witness. And it won't be long. I believe with this with all my heart that the church in America especially is in danger of losing its lampstand. And it's not going to be long before we no longer have the protections we have. And it's not just public ridicule we experience. It'll be cultural persecution. And when it happens, we're going to go through some things. We're going to suffer for the name of Christ. But beloved, there's hope. Because Jesus said, you don't have to lose your lampstand. You don't have to watch the power of God leave your church and leave your life. You don't have to lose your fire. You don't have to lose your, your supernatural protection that's keeping these things at bay. What do you got to do? You got to repent and go back to do the things you did at first when you first fell in love with Jesus Christ. It's very simple. 
but it makes a decision. It makes a decision that I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to allow life to burden me down, to get me off of my course. I'm not going to let the enemy distract me. I'm not going to let financial woes worry me. I'm going to surrender to what God's called me to do, and I am going to let the Spirit lead me and empower me to make a change in my city. I'm going to pursue his heart every day. Every day I'm going to wake up, I'm going to get on my hands and knees, and I'm going to say, God, make me love you more today than I loved you yesterday. God, give me eyes to see people you're after today so that I don't miss them when I walk by them. God, if, if you have something for me to do, let me know it, and I'll accomplish it. I won't shrink back. And we begin to rise up in who we are as the children of God. And see, beloved, God has hope for this church just as he has hope for our church and hope for our city. And he ends this letter the same way he begins in Revelation 2-7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to what? Eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God's desire, Jesus' desire is for you to be filled with his life, to eat from the tree, for the paradise in heaven to come down to earth, as earth as it is in heaven, that his blessing would descend on his people. And guess what? It's up to us. It's up to us. Who are we going to be? Who am I going to be? Walford, in his commentary, he says, this should not be construed as a reward only for a special group of Christians, but the normal experience or expectation for all. And it's to remind them again of God's gracious provision of salvation in a time and eternity. Love for God is not wrought by legalistically observing his commands, but by responding to one's knowledge and appreciation of God's love. And that's what God wanted for the Ephesians. And that's what God wants for you today. To respond to his love. Hear the warning and respond to his love. Because he has good plans for us. He desires good for us. He wants us to keep walking in his power, shining bright in his light. So his blessings can flow. And not just for us, but for where we live. For the place that we call home. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment. As we bring this to a close, I just have a few takeaways. And I want you to be honest with yourself in this moment. What is the foundation of your relationship with God? Are you in love with Jesus Christ? Are you in love with with his spirit? Or are you just trying to appease God to clear your guilty conscience? Do you serve because of the great privilege it is to know Christ? Or are you just serving because it's right? Are you closer to God today, more hungry to learn, more active in your faith today than you were 10 years ago? or 20 years ago, or 30 years ago? Or has your heart grown cold? 
Is your heart disconnected? Beloved, if you feel distant today, the last question I have for you is, do you want to reconnect your heart? Do you want to reconnect your heart to his heart? Do you want a fresh touch of the spirit to reconnect your heart to the Lord? I believe the Lord is ready to help you make a change, to change directions. As he is singing in the garden, I believe he's singing over you right now, saying, beloved, come home. Come back to me. Come close. And I'll come close to you. Like the prodigal's father, he's ready with a robe and a ring. And to celebrate your return. If that's you here today, the invitation to you as the prayer team comes forward is to come and ask the Lord for a fresh fire. To open your heart to him again and say, God, I've, I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know what's been going on, but my heart's not as impassionate for you as it used to be. I'm not as on fire as I used to be. I don't really care as much as I used to. I don't know how I got here, but it's true, I'm, I'm here. But today, God, I want to be restored. I want to be rekindled. I want my heart to burn again with you. And if there's stuff in your life that you know is in the way, just give it to him. Jesus says, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He's ready to do a work in your life. I believe in my whole heart that there's a breakthrough coming for somebody here today. If you respond to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, if you respond to what the Spirit is saying to you, Lord God, we just thank you for this word to the Ephesians. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of rebuke, your grace is so evident, that your heart for us is so evident, that you desire, above all, to restore to redeem and to bless. And so, God, whoever is wrestling, whoever's battling, whoever's thinking in their heart right now, yeah, I just, I don't know, man. I just don't feel, I don't feel close to God, but I don't know if I should go forward or I don't know if I need to go forward or, man, nothing's really wrong. I just, man, I'm in a season. God, whoever that is, I just pray that when we stand, they wouldn't hesitate. They'd come forward, God, and I pray that even before they get here, you'd rock them, that you'd surround them with your love. Spirit, you'd come upon them, God, and that the hardness on their heart, the walls that they've built would be broken in Jesus' name. And the heart of stone would become a heart of flesh beating to the rhythm of heaven. And then you'd help them see their life in a brand new way. God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with you, they've never truly made you Lord and Savior. They've been a part of a lot of religious services. They've done a lot of religious things, but there's been never been a moment where they've accepted Jesus as their Savior. They've repented of their sins, and they've received your forgiveness by making Jesus their Lord. I pray, God, they would come and they'd say, I want, I want to be connected to the Lord. I want to begin a relationship with God. I want to give God my heart today. And that today, God, you get glory in the house of the Lord. We love you, God. We thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.
God's speaking to your heart. You're the one. You need to get reconnected. You come right now. Don't wait. Just leave your seat and come. If you're nervous to come by yourself, grab the person next to you. Bring them up. Come on. The Spirit of God is speaking. If you need to receive Jesus as your Savior, you don't have a relationship with God, and you want to give Him your heart, then come. We'll pray with you. Let the Spirit minister to you as God does a work in your life. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.